I'm, I'm gazing around the room, memorizing some of your faces, because what I know is that I'm looking at the faces that don't have a beach house that I could one day ask about, and you, you, you may not have a friend that uh, has one that you can get to. So here we are, right? And glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. Last week, Bill took those two very familiar verses in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and showed that Paul explains how a person is saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And then he grabbed verse 10, which is not so familiar. And we saw Paul says, let me tell you why a person is saved. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It was an amazing weekend. If you were here last weekend as we watched multiple baptisms, both here at the Brentwood campus and at our Franklin campus, uh, men and women, uh, children, men and women being baptized, proclaiming, God has saved me. Uh, I'm the recipient of someone spoke into my life doing the good work, and I've come to faith. We're going to look at a video at the very end of our time today from the Franklin campus. It was a great reminder that the good works, right, the good works that uh, we walk in are fundamentally the work of making the gospel known. That, that's the heart of these good works. Well, from a historical perspective, I want you to know, making the gospel known, the movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to the world, um, it had many, many obstacles. Uh, but there is one obstacle that it faced that was seemingly insurmountable. And this is what Paul is going to actually address in our text today. The, the best way I know to help us grasp it, I mean, I don't know that we can totally get there, but just to get a sense of what, what this obstacle was and what it felt like to try and uh, address it is to do a little history lesson. And so I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. I'm going to make it very quick and short and sweet, hopefully. But just we need to understand a bit of the historical context. Uh, you know, when Paul wrote this, it was coming out of a historical context. And only when we understand that historical context can we then understand the text as he wrote it and then bring the text into today. Oh, this is the principle for us some 2,000 years later. So stick with me. I'm going to give you the cliff note version of Israel's history. We've done this many times. It's always a good reminder. This is the story of how God redeems. And I'm going to highlight a few things that are referred to in our passage. Okay, let's start here. Um, you don't need to take notes on this. Everybody just kind of follow along with me. Let's start in the garden and then the fall. This is where it all begins. They, uh, Adam and Eve rebelled. And the, the word, the picture I want in your head is this. I want this in your head. Separation. It was separation. We're made to be with God and with others, there's separation when they rebel. That's what sin does. It divides and separates. But in the midst of the separate, even as the separation occurred, God said he made a promise. He said, I'm going to send a man one day born of a virgin who's going to make this separation go away. That's Genesis 3. You move through Genesis, get to Genesis 12, and we see that God chooses a man, Abram. He later names him Abraham. He says to Abram, he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and through you, key phrase, 
all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now here's something I want us to note early on in the story of redemption. God makes promises. God enters into covenants. And the responsibility of someone that God enters into a covenant is for that person to trust God's promise and live according to it. You see that? So we're getting an idea, oh, so this is how God's going to work out redemptive history. And now through Abraham, God forms the nation of what? Of Israel. This is where they came from, through Abram. And God gave them his law, his precepts. You know, his law of precepts said, this is how you're going to live. This is how you're going to marry. This is how you're going to relate to his families, his culture, his society, all things. Now, he only gave that law to Israel, Israel only. And that law was designed to make Israel, if you will, distinct from all other nations. I've described it this way, that, that Israel, you see, is Israel's the womb through which the Savior is going to come. And, you know, this womb has to be of certain conditions and the idea is that God gives this law so that all the other nations would look at Israel and go, well, that's how you relate to God. Oh, the way you live, that's God's character. One law in particular uh, stood out from all the others. It was the law of circumcision. Uh, it, it, you know, that, this, that the, all the males were circumcised, this was the sign of the covenant with Abraham that I'm in covenant with you, Abraham, and I'm going to do this. And that was the sign, the seal of that covenant. God will do what he promised. So, so the laws, <clears throat> using some words that we're going to grab here later, the law is like a fence around Israel. Now, it's one of those fences that keeps what's not good out and makes sure that what's inside is good. Now, here's the key thing to remember. Israel was distinct in order that the Savior could come through Israel, in order that Israel would reveal to the nations what God is like. But Israel, over time, looked at the wall like this. We're in and you're out. We got this and you don't. I mean, it goes way worse. I'm, you know, I'm being a little silly, but it goes way worse than that. And so the, the, the law actually began to divide deep animosity between the Jews, you know, the circumcised and the outside, the uncircumcised dogs. By Jesus's day, you know, the Jewish and Gentile animosity got to the point of gross absurdity. Uh, their Think of it this way, Israel's privileges, which are real, we see them in the New Testament, Romans and here, they're real. Their privileges came to be their superiority. We're, we're better than everybody. Uh, their chosenness, if you will. Again, their you know, they were chosen. Their chosenness, though, became their exclusivity. Us and us alone. And when they forget, it was through you, the nations will be blessed. So, over time, it became such they were embittered enemies um, it, I'm just using some words that aren't even probably getting to the heart of it, but they deeply despised each other. And into this historical setting comes the promised Messiah. He's a Jew. He died for everyone. Make, make salvation available to all. 
but he's Jewish. I mean, it's almost like a non-starter. How is this thing even going to get outside of Jerusalem? And I got to tell you, read the book of Acts. It didn't go easy. (laughs) It's still not going easy. This is the obstacle, you see, okay, historically. Here's the obstacle, like, how's this going to get to the nations? I don't know about you, but I've got some seemingly insurmountable obstacles in my own life, in my world. These roadblocks, I'm going, it's not going to happen. I can't get beyond it. And actually, like the text itself, many of mine are relational. What Paul has to say not only shed lights on these obstacles, but I want to say this, it brings great hope. Not that these obstacles, and I'm talking about my own and yours, not that they may be overcome, but that they are in Christ. So there's our historical background. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 18. I'm going to take it a few verses at a time, and based on what we just covered, my hope is when I read this, you'll go, oh, okay, Oh, I get that without a whole lot of explanation. He begins in verse 11, therefore, I got to stop there to remind us he's just talked about salvation and the good works we walk in. Therefore means whatever he's saying now is connected to that. In light of that, this, you see, so we keep it connected. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. He's talking to Gentiles. You're strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Stop there. Notice he begins with this phrase, circumcision, uncircumcision, in quotation marks. He's, He's being sarcastic. He's, he's going, you know, y'all are called the circumcision. Then he says, by the, see what he says? By the so-called, how about that? By the so-called circumcision. You know what that is? That's called a jab in the gut of the Jews. <laughs> you know, you guys are uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And he uses this phrase, which is made by, you know, made by the hands of men, this, this phrase, made by hands, that circumcision made by hands. That's a huge, uh, you know, slam on how the Jews viewed their circumcision because Paul says that's one made by hands. That idea would take them back to the Old Testament where that phrase uh, made by hands is, it, ref- it always takes us to idols, that when they made idols, they were made by human hands. What are idols made by human hands? nothing. That's what they are. They're nothing. And Paul's saying in a, you know, in a way here, he's saying to the Jews, even as he's speaking to the Gentiles, you understand your, your, that circumcision means nothing now that Christ has come. And you go to Romans, you go to Colossians, and you see the, the circumcision, Paul says, that matters is a circumcision of the heart where the flesh is removed. It's a spiritual circumcision. Notice he says of the Gentiles, you're separate from Christ. You're excluded from Israel. You're strangers to the covenants and promises. That's why I gave you the history. Because see, all the promises and covenants and the commonwealth, the nation, that was all Israel's. It wasn't the Gentiles. 
And it ends with a terrible, two, two terrible phrases. No hope without God. That's as dark as it gets. Then verse 13, but now in Christ. That's the crux of the matter. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the cross. There's the shed blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. You see that? So it's in the cross. You who were without God had no hope. All that, all that distance. Wow. You're brought in. Speaking to the Gentiles here. Now, he says, remember, you know, what you were. I want to say a word about this in principle. Let me give it to you this way. We remember what we were apart from Christ in light of what we are in Christ. I'll say it again. I'm going to add a word. Always remember what you were apart from Christ in light of who you are in Christ. The remembering's got to have these two parts, who I was and who I am. Don't ever start remembering I was, it was awful, I couldn't. Don't ever go there without, but I'm in Christ. Because what defines you and me, if you're in Christ, is our in Christness, not what we were. You know, it's that thing, we always have this negative bias where, I mean, someone could come up, come up after me and go, that was a good message, that was a good message. And then the 10th person or 11th person could come and say, Lord, that wasn't very good. And what am I going to remember? You just well, always go to the negative. You know, and so when we go here, it's healthy to remember. It makes us grateful. But you go there with the knowledge and the conviction of who you are in Christ. Always do that together. When he started the letter, what did he say? What did he call us? How did he identify those who are in Christ? Holy ones to the to the saints. You remember who you were apart from Christ in light of who you now are in Christ. Always together. Verses 14 and 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, cross again, it's all at the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, the enmity, the dividing wall. It's not the law itself. But, but you know, he uses this phrase, and which is why I talked a moment ago about the laws like a, a fence. You know, you're looking, it's, it does divide. It does separate in a sense. But what Paul is saying here is that not that the law has been abolished, because what does Psalm 119 say? What does it say about the law over and over? It's good. It's right. It's just. It's holy. It's a reflection of the character of God. But what the misuse of the law that the Israelites expressed, what did that create between Jew and Gentile? Division. It divided them. But now that Christ has come, and Christ, you see, he, he didn't abolish the law. What did Christ do? He fulfilled it. So now the penalty, 
you see, of not fulfilling the law, you see, is not, we don't have to bear that. It's, it's, it's inert. It doesn't operate under that principle anymore. The principle is we're in Christ who satisfied the law so that the dividing wall's gone. Jew, Gentile, if you're in Christ, there is no dividing wall anymore. Both are made right with God by faith. Now, a, a, a thought on this. God made Israel distinct for a greater purpose. Let's not ignore that they were to be distinct. They were to be different. But it was for a greater purpose. In, in a paradoxical way, if I could say it like this, the hope of the whole world was that Israel would be Israel. <laughs> Truly, now the whole world didn't know that, but, but their whole hope rested upon Israel being distinct and being Israel through whom the Savior would come. And so, you know, the Gentiles, they despised the Jews. And do you see what they're doing? They're actually despising those through whom they'll be saved. And the Jews despise the Gentiles. You see what they're doing? They're actually despising those that God has actually called them to be the blessing to. Just gets all flipped over. And I want to bring that and I want to lift it up and I want to bring it right here to today. In principle, think about this in light of the church. We're the church. God calls the church to be distinct from the world for a greater purpose. See, we, we can fall prey to the same thing, can we not? We're in, we got it, we don't do those things, we're better. We're, I mean, we can, we can fall into that because we forget we're, we're here for a greater, we're to be distinct, yes, but for a greater purpose. When we forget the greater purpose, we fall into Israel's error, pride and exclusivity, arrogance. But if we are not careful, we fall into the other error. When we fail to be distinct, we have nothing to give. Nothing to give. Warren Wiersbe, he's got a way with words, and he wrote this phrase that caught my attention. Bible teacher, and he said, when the church is least like the world, it does most for the world. That is worth pondering. When the church is least like the world, it does most for the world. Let us be distinct in Christ for the greater purpose to bless and bring the world faith in Christ. Well, Paul goes further in the text. He, he doesn't just say the wall's down. Do you notice he says that Jew and Gentile are made into one new man? Made into one new man. That word make, it's the Greek word katizo. It's, it's this idea of created. He, he, he created a new man. New, kainos. New is not... Um, here's the newest 
car, you know, of a thousand. Here's the newest thing. No, new is something that wasn't God has created and now is. This is kind of mind-blowing. That he makes them into one new man. Something that it didn't exist before, but now is. It means that to be a Christian, this is for you and I, it's, it's not simply to be spiffed up, shined, polished, cleaned up, given a bath, kind of refurbished, but better than... Not, it's not that at all. To be in Christ is to be a totally new creation. In Christ. And dwelt by the Spirit. How did Paul say it? First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, same Greek word, creature, the same Greek root word. We just talked about create. In Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Such that, Paul says, that the you know, Jew and Gentile become this one new man. It says they are reconciled now. They're brought together in one body. No longer Jew, Gentile, they're, it's totally different. They're in one body now and they're one man. What is that body? What's the body that they come into, become, and make up? Look over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the, what's the next word? To the church. What's the church? Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the church. That's all Christ, All people who are in Christ are the church and are the body of Christ. And in this way, he says, therefore, all Christians, can I say this? That all Christians are reconciled. That is a spiritual truth and reality. There is a sense in which reconciliation is not something we do, but it's something that has been done to us and for us in Christ. I mean, this just puts it on a whole different playing field, and I'll, you'll understand what I'm saying when I say this. I, I want to tell you that I, I struggle with this. Um, I struggle in this way. I have this question, okay? Here's a question that always rumbles in my mind. If Christians are, are reconciled, I mean, it's, it, it's a truth, it's a spiritual reality. If Christians are reconciled in Christ, why are the hardest, most difficult relationships in my life with other Christians? I, am I the only one? I mean, but I'm telling you, it's like, why is that? I think about it a lot. I mean, I think about, I have, I've literally thought about, you know, in 15 years of being a part of helping plant lead this church, I, I go, I've made, more, it seems to me at least, you know, I've made more enemies, so to speak, in, in Christ, I think sometimes than if I'd have just gone off and started a business and made widgets and sold them. But, you know, had Matt Cowan come up to me afterwards, who runs an insurance business, multiple people says, Lloyd, it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> you know, it, 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 and it doesn't, does it? It's, hmm. I, I, I truly struggle with this. It's difficult. Um, what, I, what I understand biblically, and, and, and if I might offer this as some help, 
for myself and for you. What I understand biblically is that reconciliation, please understand, is both positional and practical. It's both positional and practical. Well, well, what do you mean? Well, it's like everything else about you and I that are in Christ. It's, it's positional and it's practical. You know, positionally in Christ, look at verse 6 of chapter 2. It says here that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Positionally, if you're in Christ, you understand you're seated with Christ. Mm. Practically, how I live my life on earth, I am not in that seat a lot. I get out of that seat. (laughs) You understand positionally in Christ, you are a totally... New creation, creature. I'm going to tell you something. Practically on earth, I struggle like crazy with my old habits. Positionally, you do understand, as Paul opened the letter, you're holy. (laughs) Practically, I don't look holy a lot. I've said this before. Most of the Christian life on planet Earth is learning to live what we already are. It's just living now what we already are in Christ. What we already are positionally in Him. It's, you know, it's living it today. It's becoming more and more like that. It's called mature in the faith, become more and more like Jesus. And we don't do it perfectly. We, we struggle. We, 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 we're up, we're down. You know, oftentimes the Christian life is described as a roller coaster. You know, I, I describe it more like a, 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 a bee that can't find the hive, you know. <laughs> more like that to me. It's just going every which way at times. But we progress. We never quit progressing. And we progress, what I want to say to you, is with a great deal of hope. Because while I, I don't believe any of our positional you know, truths about us in Christ, I don't believe any of them are ever fully experienced on this side of heaven. I don't think we get there. That's, we're never fully that, those things, but we're growing in them. But we can live with a tremendous amount of hope. Okay, We can live with this conviction. You know, I keep my, it's going to be okay thing on here because I got to live with this conviction. It is going to be okay. Why can I live with such hope even when I seem to be struggling in relationships or whatever? Because that's our future and it's certain and it's sure. And so we can bring, bring it back into the present day and our time today and go, I can, I'm living for that certainty. And one day when we see Christ, what does the Bible say? We'll see him face to face. We'll be just like him. And let me tell you something, all the, you know, lack of reconciliation, all the difficulties, all, all that. It, it is fully gone then because we're fully in Christ. That's our future. And so we can live in our present, see, with that great hope. I want you to hear me say this. I want to be so careful. I don't say this to remove our responsibility to be at peace with all men. No, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So I'm not saying this to kind of let you off the hook and go, well, Lloyd said, you know, I can just go around and not have good relationships because one day they'll, no, 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 not at all. I say it to encourage myself and you to press on with hope, with unshakable confidence in what God does and can do.
verses 17 and 18. He ends, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Three times in this passage he speaks of peace. Verse 14, it says, he himself is, you know, he is our peace. Verse 16, he establishes peace. And verse 17, he preached peace. This idea of peace, the, the, the Greek word comes out of the Old Testament word shalom. And, and the Greek word, it carries this idea uh, that goes so far beyond we're not shooting each other. <laughs> it's, it goes so far beyond lack of conflict, absence of war. It, it, it is that, please understand, it is that. But it's so much more the idea of biblical peace has this idea of this, it's this root of, of bringing back, of joining, of completion, of soundness, of rest. That's the idea of biblical peace. Which gets us to this word up on the side screens, whole. Whole. When you look at that word and you think about it, 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 I mean it this way. There is, you know, from the garden, there's this, remember I said separation. There is, there is a hole in the soul of everyone apart from Christ. You think of that word hold, you know, I don't know what comes to your mind, but what comes to my mind when I think whole, I think space. I think void, distance, empty, missing, scarcity, lack. But when we're in Christ, you see, it's he is our peace. He establishes peace and biblical peace is way more the absence of conflict. Biblical peace is actually sort of the same word. It's whole. It's whole. It's whole. And it's like, wait, that sounds like the same word. It does sound like the same word, but it's the it's a totally different word. Whole. Here is what? What, 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 you know, just you sit there whole. When I think a whole, I go full, complete. All the parts that were are brought back in. I'm, I'm whole again. There's that's peace. It is when everything is as it should be. our peace. I don't know of a better way to illustrate this than to tell a story, but I'm actually going to show a story. I mentioned baptisms at the Franklin campus. I want you to watch a baptism at the Franklin campus. This is a baptism of, Brit- baptism of Brittany Welch. Uh, Brittany's the, uh, the daughter of James and Leanne Mefford. James and Leanne both uh, on staff here. And you're going to hear their story from Leanne and from Brittany. It's a longer video, but we've got the time. That's why I'm concluding here to let you watch it. It's actually nine minutes long. But I want you to watch this. Um, James is going to say a word too, and he's kind of wet and everything because before they baptized Brittany, they baptized Shay, Brittany's husband. And and then Leanne's going to tell a little bit of their story, and I'm just going to invite you to do this. And their story is, is public, much of it here, but you know, you can read between the lines on some of the things that Leanne says and it's an it's an amazing story. 
And I want you to see it because you remember last week Bill said, you know, walk in good works. And I think he said it was Billy Graham maybe that said, draw a three-foot circle around yourself and whoever steps into it, there's your person that you can show. Well, um, Brittany stepped into James and Leanne Mefford's three-foot circle. And they helped lead her faith. You know, God did it. You know, the hole kept getting deeper for her, quite frankly, even as she's with them. But you're going to see in her that she has come to know the God of peace. And she does it in a way, and this is why I think this is beautiful, in a way that she remembers all she was apart from Christ and who she is in Christ. And we can celebrate with her. Let's watch this video. For James and I, our story and, and with Brittany starts um, well before we ever met her. About eight years ago, we um, just started praying for what God would want us to do in our lives and grow our family. And so on a three-by-five index card, we wrote foster parenting and adoption and posted it on the back of our headboard in our bedroom and just began to pray about and open our hearts to whatever God would want to do in that process. And um, at the time, I had worked for... Um, DCS and had met Brittany when she was about 14 and um, not knowing what God was going to do in that process and um, but fell in love with her almost immediately um, just her personality and who she was came home and told James about her and um, and I told her caseworker at the time that um, just keep me updated on what happens with her um, so when she turned 16 um, some things with her family had um, dissolved and situations happened and within almost a week's time, um, she was living with us, and uh, which was a little crazy. At the time, we had a three- and a six-year-old. We had no idea how to parent a teenager or what we were getting into. Um, but God had wonderful, beautiful plans for that. And then uh, when she turned 17, she asked James and I, would you adopt me? Um, and I already feel a part of your family, but just to make it official. So... So... Uh... The uh, adoption process started, and uh, she didn't officially become ours until the day after her 18th birthday. But um, she has uh, been a blessing to us, and um, our family has uh, changed in, in amazing ways and great ways. And uh, all the way to the point that became a grandfather at uh, 32. <laughs> and uh but um it's been amazing to watch Brittany and Shay and uh watching them hit rock bottom was one of the hardest things to do as a as a parent for anybody out there that has children and going through it but then to watch them come back and to see what God can do and how he can redeem And how he does, yeah. yeah. Well, I asked Brittany to, um, to share her story. And um, just the gospel is so centered in adoption that we are all adopted by grace alone. And, uh, and so she's going to read the story. You want me to hold the mic for you? I started out as a broken, lonely, unappreciated, angry, and confused little girl. I grew up learning that love wasn't real, and heartache was my best friend. 
the loss of my mother at the age of seven, and my granny and then my big sister being mentally and physically abused or abandoned by every person I became close to and never fitting in and being bullied at school and at home made that fact even more real for me. I had no one and no one to love me. I found myself praying at an early age at night. I prayed for death, for me and for those that hurt me, for someone to love me, for someone to take me in their heart and to take me away. As years passed and things became worse for me, I turned to other options. And those other options turned things even worse for me. I stopped praying and I started living for myself. I went into survival mode. I went into court dates, suspensions, failed classes, more abuse, and several caseworkers. And at age 16, I was kicked out. Or in other words, run away. Which wasn't uncommon for me. I landed right back in the same home. Little did I know my whole life was about to change at 16. One day, my aunt got a call from an old caseworker of mine, Leanne Mefford. Hadn't talked with her in years, but kept her close to my heart. The day Leanne and I met, I felt like I could trust her, which was really uncommon for me at that point in my life. I spilled out everything I could to her during her visits. I could tell her that she really, I could tell that she really wanted to help, and I looked up to her for believing in me. The phone call that Leanne made to my aunt was an invitation for me to come live with the Meffords. As much as I wanted to escape from the life I was living, I was sure I was living with my big sister soon, so I, I didn't accept their offer right away. They asked me to call them anytime I needed them. So not long after we met, things became worse at home. So I did call Leanne, and I called her right away. I threw things in my bag, and we went and met with her. It all happened so fast it didn't even seem real. My heart pounded so fast all the way there to meet them. I was seeing God's work, and I felt his love. Something I felt like I didn't see often or feel. The week I moved in, My big sister Tiffany died in a car crash. I was so angry with God and I didn't understand why that happened. I thought things were looking up for me. My whole ways stayed around and my anger was the emotion in my the only emotion in my heart. I could mask it at times but never let the excitement of a new home, new life, new family change me. I ended up meeting my husband Shay at 17 while living with the Meffords, and I became pregnant shortly after meeting him, and I was so angry at God. I was angry because I felt like I just started life, and I just started finding out who I was, but having my daughter was the best thing that's ever happened to me, besides the Meffords, (laughs) and I know now that God gave me my daughter Tiffany to change my heart and open up my eyes. Shay and I married when when she was five months old. And we're now parents of three beautiful children, Tiffany, Talon, and Titus. My story isn't to its end, it's just beginning. I am only 22 years old. I came to faith, and I'm choosing to make a stand in front of you all and share all of this to help you see that God does great things in life. I was in the loneliest, darkest, angriest, most sinful place in my life, and I gave up, and I gave in. 
I stopped and said, I give up. I can't do it anymore. God help me change. And I prayed that God would change me. I prayed he would change my heart, and he has. He has worked on me, and he has been here for me this whole time. All those times I prayed for someone when I was little, he provided that for me. He carried me through it all, and he allowed the methods in my life to show me the right ways to love someone, the right ways to be a woman and to love God. I'm choosing to love my God and follow Jesus as my Savior to believe in my heart that God has a plan for me, just as he did when he sent Jesus to be born and die and resurrected. I want to show everyone that I'm living for him and have accepted that I'm here for God and to lead others toward him, because that is what life is all about, leading us all towards him. I just want to share, if, if you're in the audience and you're thinking, if you knew my past... I just want to say there is no hole too deep. There is no sin too great for the grace of God. And as we look back at at your story, um, we see his grace pursuing. And there is a chance to respond. And today, Michael's message is, but God in his great love and mercy has provided a way. There is a way. So it's our honor, privilege to celebrate your identity with Christ. Baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Identify with Christ in his burial and death and resurrection. Raised to newness of life. Let's stand together. The but God of verse 6 became, but now in Christ for Brittany, and such is the most important decision we make on the planet. But now in Christ, I've believed. Have you believed? Have you put your faith? Are you personally trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? For he is our peace, he established peace, and he preaches peace, and there is no peace apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes later to the Thessalonians, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. God bless.